Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. My guest on this episode is Amir Habouche, co-founder and CEO of Snowball Industries, a home services holding company with four portfolio companies today. Their vision is to build a permanent, publicly traded home for these companies, and Amir and I talk extensively about what an IPO looks like and the benefits and trade-offs it brings. We also talk a lot about empathy, a skill ambitious CEOs cannot get enough of, lessons from Amir's family on empathy, and how he coaches new managers on empathy and leadership. This conversation had a lot of depth, and I think you'll be able to take away many of these lessons to your own company. Enjoy. One of the most impactful things our CEO guests have talked about doing for their companies is upgrading their finance team. Ravix Group, led by CEO and former podcast guest Timmy Oka, is the expert you need to build a scalable finance function. They can handle everything from fractional CFO work HR consulting, and outsourced accounting. Ravix can even help your company prepare for an IPO, if that's an ambition of yours. To get in touch with Timmy and Ravix, go to ravixgroup.com and tell them to think like an owner sent you. And now for some advice and observations for finance and small companies, here's Timmy himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. So there's a lot of companies right now focused on managing costs and conserving cash and making sure their cash planning ensures they'll survive the next couple of years. What kind of advice do you offer clients right now in regards to cost and cash management? Right. So expense management is um, not a core function of ours, but because our staff, typically controllers, are really intimate with the customer's financials, we're able to give them a good idea of where they could improve their costs. So one of the things that we like to look at is, particularly in areas where we have partnerships, for example, payrolls, benefits, things of that nature, what are your cost profiles and are you getting the best rates? Similar to our relationships with banks, we have you know endless relationships with these service providers, and we're able to pass on those savings to our customers. So oftentimes, the right solution for our customers is to move to a vendor that gives them you know better pricing, and we're able to enable that as well. The second part of that is just enabling better visibility into the existing state of the, of the company's cash. And so one of the things that we've been doing much more recently, uh, much more frequently, excuse me, is 13-week cash flows. So helping to forecast what the cash looks like in the short term, just to make sure the company has a good handle on where the outflows are going to be and to make sure they're properly prepared when that happens. And then lastly, just more, I guess, supervision in terms of budgets and making sure we do budget versus actual. So we've been helping a lot of our clients put into place a budget. And then every month, uh, we will prepare the budget versus actual and then review the review that with them. To, to make sure if anything is going off track, then we can correct it you know, as soon as possible. But just generally, I would say in this environment, better stewardship of the business has been more important, whereas previously folks were more focused on growth. So that's what we've seen. Excellent. Thank you, Timmy. To learn more about Ravix Group, head to their website at ravixgroup.com and tell them Think Like an Owner sent you. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood & Strong and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I loved our discussion earlier on Berkshire Hathaway books, the snowball making of an American capitalist and others. 
Is there like a favorite takeaway you've had from the various Berkshire books that you've come across or coming to or watching an annual meeting or interviews that he's had? Any Anything stand out as like a core lesson you've taken and applied at Snowball? One stands out more than anything else and it's a uh, reputation. Um, you know, reputation is something, you know, you can build uh, over decades, but can pretty much erode in a, in a matter of a day if done wrong. So for us, the reputation matters, you know, as we're building a brand, both at Snowball, both at the operating companies that we have, quality of work, uh, how we treat our partners and our partners are not just think the builders, it's our all stakeholders, it's our vendors. We want to make sure that we have good relationship with them, not just uh, beat them on, on price. We want to make sure that they were part of the community that they're operating under. You've noticed what happened with supply uh, chain issues over the past two, two years, having a good relationship with a vendor that, you know, it's always a pleasant working experience and they're giving you one good terms and making sure that you get the equipment and the supplies and materials you need to actually execute on the job. Let's not worry about half a percent or a percent or anything like that. So that's how we approach everything is uh, through the lens of reputation and, and relationship. Same thing with our investors, with our uh, all of our stakeholders, with our employees. We want to make sure that we uh, also are, are doing right by the owners that sold the businesses to us. They cared about their reputation. Some of them still carry their last name on the businesses that they, we acquired, for example, Anderson. It's a it's a reputation they built and a brand they built over sixty years. We're now those stewards, uh, so we have to do right by them uh, to continue uh, building on that. So I'll say reputation would be like top of mind. I think I repeated that already like ten times. So it's definitely important. And it's a small world too. There's you never know where relationships could go from folks that you're meeting today until five or ten years in the future. What could happen in both of your careers? Where have you seen reputations? tarnished? Like what are some examples of things that you've seen in your industries that have rubbed folks the wrong way and tarnished reputations and hurt folks in the long run? I would say right now more than anything else is on the acquisition side, how you structure the deal. We try to make it more of a win-win so that post-acquisition, the way we actually mark a successful acquisition is if a month to three months from now, a seller refers someone else to sell their business. That's when we indicated the win. It's almost like when you, a consumer puts a review on Yelp or Google. It's after they had the full experience from the first phone call to the installation of the unit and, and making sure it's a clean area after they leave. They're gonna. They're so enthusiastic and they're so delighted about the experience that they're going to put a review. That's how we mark a successful acquisition. And what we've seen is, and nothing wrong. There's really good private equities or good acquisition partners out there. But some of them go about it in a way of, of thinking they, they can pull a fast one or be a little bit more aggressive in, in the in how they word an LOI or a purchase agreement that you know a typical contractor maybe didn't get the right legal team to be able to uh, flush that out or identify it. That's stuff that that came about and we've seen and we're you know we're, that's not what we do but or our standard. But you know to your point, that's the closest thing we've seen. Yeah, when you say not writing contracts or purchase agreements as aggressively uh, as others, is there a particular set of terms, like maybe two or three, that you feel like you've tried to be the most flexible on that you see others draw maybe two hard lines on? Purchase price comes to mind. You know, a friend of mine actually is our he's our vice chairman. 
is famously saying your price, our terms or our price, your terms. So you could, you know, ask for the, the price that you have your anchor in, uh, but let's structure it in a way that, you know, we, we can actually deliver on that, whether it's having milestone payments over uh, years, adjusting the seller nodes and having an earnout component, but being flexible in how we go about acquiring or structuring a deal is the first step of it is to find out what exactly does the seller motivations are? What is the seller? What is a win for them? And what are they anchored towards? And okay, let's now, what's the good outcome for them? And let's backtrack to how we can structure it so that our investment committee and our team feels comfortable with it. And of course, on the other side, making sure that we have the right mix in terms of the equity and debt as well uh, to be able to execute on, on the acquisition. The other one related to it is making sure that we take care of his employees or key employees. That's always a big concern for the seller, not just not just for us. So us having a path to, to go public are able to provide stock option and stock grants for key employees. And this way, day one after an acquisition, they're equity holders. They have that ownership mentality from day one. And then it makes retention easier post-acquisition. And they like seeing that. And like, they feel like that's a good way to also take care of people that help them build their business and help them grow to a point of an exit option for them. So this way they can position it like, hey, you know, I'm taking care of you guys. So they don't feel like they got blindsided either. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about your vision for going public and having an IPO as a public business. But before diving into that, I think it'd be helpful to have a review of, of what Snowball is. And my understanding that I'll need your help filling in the gaps and you know expanding, but Snowball raised a pool of capital and is acquiring some service businesses and with a vision for being people first and operation focused and with a growth mindset. But I would I'd love to hear your the full story of Snowball and what your vision is. And going public, of course, is part of that, but there's, there's lots of dimensions to the vision that I'd love to hear more about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so back in t- uh, June, July of 2020, my co-founder and current chairman, Devin Sony met up with our other co-founder, Xavier Helgeson, at a summit in, in Utah. Actually, was introduced by another friend of ours, uh, Robert Babbage, a great guy, also entrepreneurial. And he is one of Snowball's or first uh, investor in Snowball as well. But all that being said, he introduced them. They hit it off uh, right away. Xavier called his co-founder, partner at Enduring Ventures, Sieva Kozinski. And Devin called me and said, Hey, you know, we, you got to meet these guys. And they were planning, we're talking about building a holding company and loving the, the trades and really want to elevate the people in it. So within a matter of a few weeks, got on a Zoom call involved in a local restaurant here, here in LA. And during COVID, every restaurant was shut down. So pretty much it was, we're able to use it as, as a mastermind office. They, the team flew down from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. We spent time together mapping and brainstorming a lot of the vision of Snowball, including the name and where you alluded at the beginning with Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway and Snowball being a hat to his autobiography. So we're all very aligned in our core values and wanting to provide, we're motivated by, by value generation more than anything else. And then within quick order of incepting in September of 2020, we had our two first acquisitions in, the, in towards the end of the year in December of 2020. And that's Northwest Arkansas mechanical new construction and service business in the HVAC business in the Northwest Arkansas. 
HVAC plumbing business out of Fairfax, Virginia. And after those two acquisitions, you know, within a matter of nine to 10 months, I closed on a plumbing operation out of Phoenix, Arizona, that's Diamondback. To round up that, that year, towards the end of the year, we acquired a marketing agency out of Toronto, Canada, mainly for the talent. You know, they're, they're known for doing really good SEO work. Not a lot of people do good SEO work. These guys are pretty much the top 1%. We wanted the talent within Snowball as one that we're servicing our, our clients, our operating companies. Uh, so it was a good way for us to retain that and, and continue building on that. And we're seeing that paying dividends quite a bit for us. So. Yeah, these are pretty quick acquisitions. Like you mentioned, within three months of founding, having two acquisitions. So clearly the story resonated with a number of owners. When you point to the story you've been able to tell through Snowball, what key points stand out most to sellers? So the biggest one is always the concern of the next flip. You know, they they have people that they pretty much spend significant amount of time with. These are the legacy and the culture that they built over decades. They're always concerned, hey, your private equity is buying, when is the next flip? When are you gonna get your your exit and your if you have investors, what's their liquidity event? For us, and we're able to say with conviction that when you sell to Snowball, you sell forever mainly because our investors, they get their liquidity event out of us being public and we're able to, so there is no second flip. So we'll be able to continue providing that that legacy and, and culture that you build and really amplifying uh, all the positive and strengths in, in your brand and helping you mitigate some of the stuff that you struggled with just because of capacity and, and scale. That resonates with them quite a bit. And then the second part of that is having that public vehicle for us they're able to retain a portion and roll over a portion of their equity into into snowball mitigating um, uh, some of the taxes there and also being able to participate in in the in the group as a whole as it grows over decades and they decide if they want to pass that on to their kids benefit from eventual uh, dividends from the cash flowing of the operation or just uh, exit at that point at the higher valuation so that's something an option that we absolutely provide for them so that's, those are the things that resonated right away with, with sellers. And the third one is really the ability for the customer service reps, the dispatchers, the helpers, the technicians, the leadership team to actually have a piece of the company and to have equity they want for the leadership team. And then as they build, you know, choose to get some of their bonuses or participate in our ESOP in the employee stock option program and buy shares in the company directly themselves. And really not only having the ownership mentality, but having, you know, a piece of paper or digital paper saying, hey, you, you know, you're, you own a piece of this company and you're part of a bigger group. Have you seen other similar investors and acquirers of home service businesses go public in a similar way? Like who, when you're looking for inspiration or examples of or in comps of other folks who've done similar things, who do you look for? Or, there, or is it not a very populated space? It's not. There is a company that is currently public. Their ticker is FIX, F-I-X, and it's called Comfort Systems. They're fairly large. They've been public for close to a decade or two. Outside of that company, I not. Sh- I think there's one or two that are. They've reached their second and third flip. Their only other path now is to go public. So the private equity that bought them will probably spin them off into a public entity. Those are ones that I think their their timeline is eight to ten years from now because they want to reach to a certain point of growth to justify 
that level of exit or return for them, for their own internal investors. It is not common. The path we're doing is not common. You know, we're, the way we're doing it is really wanting to build a retail base. And what I mean by retail base is having, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Jones own a piece of their local neighborhood plumber before it even goes public. That has not been done. That's the path of us doing our crowdfunding raise to the Rec CF. Then, you know, in a year's time, doing a second, a larger one with our reggae filing. With each time, we're able to build our base, having 1,000, 2,000 individual investors as part of our group of investors or, or, or subscribers. And so when we go public, we, we already have all, one, all the qualifications that you would need for being listed. Uh, but second, the Main Street owns a piece of the local neighborhood HVAC plumbing electrical business. That path has not been done. Is there a certain point where going public, a certain revenue level where going public becomes either more feasible or possible or sustainable? Like, like what would be like what's revenue today for Snowball versus where it needs to be to be a public company? Revenue today for Snowball last year was actually thirty-four million that we closed at. This year we're tracking with no acquisitions, forty-two with acquisitions, including the tokens that we recently did out of out of Phoenix, should push that even further. And we have quite a bit of acquisition pipeline. But our target is not so much the the revenue. The revenue will fall probably closer to hundred and and twenty plus. Really, what we're looking for is having 18 to 20 million in um, in EBITDA. Being public is expensive. Going public is expensive. Staying public is also expensive. And we want to, we don't want to just go public. That's not our milestone success is we want to make sure that we stay public and we can afford paying everything that uh, comes in being that. I think even the signature of an auditor or, or legal becomes 20, 30% more expensive just because you have a ticker, even though it's exactly the same work. And um, you need to have compensation committee, audit committee, uh, your board needs to expand. So everything becomes more expensive and roughly could be, you know, anywhere from 1.5 million to, to 2 million and staying public, especially an MA team or MA company where every acquisition wears material and needs to get uh, audited as well. So for us, that 18 to 20 million in, uh, in profitability a year is uh, where we can absolutely absorb that and justify that the public world, because just by being public, all else being equal, you do get about 20 to 30% a premium in valuation between private and public. So that's kind of like the, where the math evens out a bit. On top of that, we want to show consistent revenue growth, both through acquisition and organic. So that public markets love that to see that hey, every year over year from the inception, you know, you hit 20 million, 34 million, 42 million and keep growing that consistent growth plus a good cash flowing operation. That's that's exciting for them in an unexciting line of business because everybody loves a startup or AI or, or some sort of a new trend, you know, plumbing, HVAC, electrical. It's not exciting, but the cash flow is and exciting for us. Hopefully investors see the same way, especially when you add our approach to it, our vision for it and, and the growth rate. How would your time as a CEO change? So if you look at a pie chart of your weekly calendar and the different activities you're focusing on, like what gets bigger and smaller being a public CEO? I'm trying not to think about it too much because right now I'm really enjoying spending a lot of time with our leadership teams and our operations and, and GMs. 
you do become a bit of a two-headed monster when you're publicly traded. You have your operation side and you have your public side. I probably will spend more time with my CFO than a COO at that point. Uh, right now, I'm really enjoying spending time with my CEO, his partner, and everything we do. So that I could see that that changing. But but yeah, it's uh, something that I, I haven't quite mapped out yet or experienced in order for you to to tell you with conviction. But uh, from my understanding, that's where it's headed. So yeah, when you talk with CEOs, you know who are running public companies or have run companies before that are public, or even just talking with your board, who probably know similar folks too. What strikes you as the most different with? how a CEO of a public company spends their time. You mentioned you might spend more time with your CFO than your COO. Be curious if there's other differences you've noticed or heard from peers or your board or friends of yours on what life, how life changes and how your time changes. You're managing up a lot more. And, you know, you're talking to your board more, to investors more, uh, to analysts more telling the story to bring more awareness uh, to your company. That's your number one job at that point. Outside of recruiting and, and retention of, of key talent at the, at the holding company, really becomes you become the, the champion of, of the brand uh, that you're building so that you can get more investors interested, providing more liquidity to your stock and just keep talking and, and being on every outlet that is willing to hear your story. So that's from what I hear is like continue providing press releases, continue being out there, having uh, quite a bit of a, a PR, IR cadence. You're the driver of that. Yeah, I remember listening to the 50X series with Transdime and listening to Nick Howley talk about the time he spent as a public company because he had a, spirit, a period of time where Transdime was private and then became public. I think he mentioned it was like 20 to 30% of his time was investor relations as a public CEO. So I'd be curious to continue our conversation as you become public and how that changes. Do you think that that would create an upward pull? You mentioned like you'd be managing upwards more. Would that be an upward pull away from the day-to-day operations of the business? Or is there some other way you can counter some of that pull if that's happening? I think, like you said, like reviewing it once a year is going to be definitely fun for us to compare what I say and what I do. A year from now, it absolutely will be an upward pull. One of the things we're working on is to have a better information flow between the operation to the holding company so that it doesn't lie on just getting on one-on-one -on -one phone calls on a weekly basis. I do enjoy getting calls. I enjoy traveling quite a bit and spending FaceTime with them and something that we'll continue doing to have that you know close pulse to operation. But to a certain extent, that won't, that won't scale. Uh, you can do it with three, four operation. With 30, 40, it's going to be a bit more difficult. So having you know, certain KPIs to, to keep track of a good, accurate, timely financial reporting with MDNA, which is you know, management discussions and analysis, in a way that we can really capture in a month like what happened and making sure that that's implemented in every single operating company would be key here. Yeah, on the one-on-one -on -one time, I remember reading about Herb Kelleher and David Neilman, who are both airline founders, and they would ride the planes on a regular basis and talk with passengers and like pass out drinks and get that like one-to-one -one feedback. And I'd be curious if there's something equivalent you could do or a sense for 
how much of your time and energy should be spent making sure that you're maintaining those lines of communication. You know, when you're, that's, that's a great idea when you're decentralized, because our operation, Snowball itself, is a holding company. I'm in LA. My COO is in Vegas. Yeah, our chairman is in Vegas. Our director of FPNA is in Alexandria, Virginia. And um, our board is between Maryland and, and San Francisco. So we're spread out. And the companies itself, as I mentioned, all over the state. And we're going to continue seeing that. We have deals out in, in Seattle that we're interested in, in Miami that we're interested in. So we can see that we're going to continue being coast to coast. Having a way for us to check quality that really comes down to the GMs running, you know, when they can you know, do secret shopper type of calls to, to their operation and, and report back to us. Definitely something we thought about checking reviews, uh, the good and the bad, how they handle the bad. I learn a lot more from mistakes than I do from anything positive. I think that came from my grandfather and an uncle. But I famously remember them always talking, you know, just just tell me the bad, the, the good will take care of itself. At least with the bad, I can actually do something about it. So I like knowing the bad so I could actually do something about it. But it's always good to hear the good and just so you know you're on the right track too. But all that being said, you know, that will fall. We're very much so like to empower and give autonomy and, and trust and verify to a certain extent with our leadership team at each one of our opcodes uh, operating companies. That quality um, uh, definitely will be fun for us to experience. One of the things that my CEO likes to do is surprise visits. Like he would just won't tell anyone and just fly out there and, and just show up. Uh, I like to give him at least a, a heads up. And mine is more casual. His is more making sure that everything is on the, on the up and up. So... You mentioned your your family. I love that quote around, tell me the bad because the good will figure itself out. What other lessons have you pulled from your family or has your family instilled in you growing up that, that you take into work? Leading with kindness and empathy. Uh, that's something that we're, you know, I embody quite a bit and I, and I um, talk through with, with my team, being empathetic, being firm, because there's a, there's a balance between sympathy and empathy but hearing them out, but also uh, encouraging them to take chances and encouraging them to work through the difficult conversations that they have to do. We're very often, we're coaches of, we become managers of, of managers and become you know their coaches or the executive coaches. That's pretty much what a lot of our one-on-ones are around and because they need to build their leadership skills. They need to build their leadership team. With it comes being empathetic to the fact that it's, they're new in that those positions or it's, you know, they're about to go through a difficult conversation, but us being that, that support for them. It's the only way that we, through trial and balance, trial and error, we came to that conclusion where in order for us to be able to really scale is to give that level of autonomy, but accountability and ownership path for the GMs. So that comes with also understanding that, hey, they'll make mistakes. If they're the right ones, they'll, they'll, take the ownership and they'll call it out before we even call it out and they'll already will come up with a solution for us. But yeah, to me, and that's a lot of it actually with, from my mom being a, you know, highly empathetic and, and kind. So yeah, empathy is huge and really an important skill and something to learn more about. Is there any memory from, it sounds like your mom was impactful and thinking about empathy. Is there any lesson or memory from childhood with your mom where that sticks out to you in regards to empathy? I mean, I still ex- experience it daily with her. Like when is she, 
any, it doesn't matter if it's a stranger and it doesn't matter if someone she hasn't met, she treated him like, you know, he's, he or she is family. Just, you know, to her right away, she connects with people. There's no judgment, wants to make sure that they're in a good path. You can see she wears her heart on her sleeve and, and I think that got passed down. So I think I just experienced it on, on a regular basis with her taking the time and listening to people. Even if you might be rushing that day, that person has something important to, to share and unload. You clear your, your next hour or two and you hear them out. And, and I apply that with, the, with my GMs too. My calendar might show that I have only one call and all of a sudden, you know, eight hours and I'm still on the phone. Because in order to get to the meat of it, sometimes it takes an hour for them to clear it out. Probably not the best time management from everything that I see on, on Twitter or anything that I read, but it's important for me to them, for them to know that they have someone that they can talk to. And, and it, you really get to the meat of things after, you know, they let go of a lot of like frustration and sometimes they solve their own problems. So being a good listener, caring about the person on the other side, not, not because you just have to, but because you want to. And that person is important just because that person is not somebody you have family relationship or friendship relationship that that person in front of you right there. And then is a, it's an important person and you should respect the fact that they're sharing their time with you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Is empathy something that you think is a, a skill that you can develop over time if you feel like you're, you're lacking in it, or do you feel like a lot of it has to do from childhood and upbringing and it's a harder thing to, to teach? That's a great question. I've been trying to spend some time thinking of that. I've seen there's an operation out of uh, Utah. It's called Any Hour. They've done a fantastic job uh, from what I've seen uh, to instill to, to instill empathy in their one-on-one as part of a process or system that they, that they implement in it. And p- part of it is doing a personality test called the color code. And they have an employee dashboard that shows the history of the employee. And when did they receive raises? What are their strengths? What are their limitations, their weaknesses? What are their core motivation? So when you spend five minutes reading about somebody else before they walk into a meeting with you, you already put yourself in their shoes. You already see the journey that they had uh, with you over the past five, 10 years as an employee, or maybe even you know they just newly got hired. So all these things for a good manager or coworker gives you a different level of insight on that individual versus just blindly getting onto a one-on-one call. That's probably the best execution that I've seen on implementing a process. And I don't think they, I don't think that their mindset, maybe there is, and I should, I should talk to them about it was, Hey, how do we put empathy into our one-on-one? I think they just operate at that level. And that's just what they saw that works best. But to your point, I haven't seen it until recently, and this is about a year ago that I came across it. Other than that, it's just through coaching and conversation of uh, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. And we do that regularly. I think even sellers that we spend time with, when we see that the conversations are getting difficult or there is friction, we take a step back, let's go play golf, go have lunch, uh, let's go have dinner, let's, let's forget talking about business. Let's build that rapport and relationship so you know you're selling to peers. There is no adversary here. There's no conflict here. We want to get to a position that you're passing your legacy on to someone, someone that is as cares for you and your company and your people in the company as much as you do and your brand. So, but that comes out of just working with your team on a regular basis. And I've seen that they themselves have a continue here and there. They implement that type of mentality. 
to their operation. When you're coaching someone on your team in an effort to improve their empathy or ability to connect with folks, what sorts of lessons or, or things do you talk about with them that you've learned about being empathetic and having empathy for others that you try to instill with them? I'd say it's definitely unique per uh, situation and trying to, um, a lot of it, it has to do is one, figure out, you know, let's say, uh, which you figure out what your history is, uh, what's your background, what are the things that you were challenged with that you learned, then see if there's any one of those that you can use as, well, remember how you were in that position. Think about this person that you're working with right now. What you went through, you know, last year uh, in, in that challenging environment or the challenging person that you're working with, that's what they're going through right now. Right away, then they can say, okay, that's, those are the things that I was struggling with. Now I understand what that person is. So c- kind of trying to first figure out what has been some of your lessons learned and then apply that moment into the, what the person is currently experiencing. I can give you an example with one of our very frequently we're big on empowerment. We see it that a lot of people get stepped over or, or passed on in getting into leadership positions because of whatever reasons. And they, they never, the opportunity probably was never given to them for them to stretch themselves and to prove themselves. And I'm a big fan of, of trusting them to execute because what happens is when you trust someone to do it, any mistakes that happens, any challenging, they probably will spend a bit more time than normal. They probably will figure it out. They'll take great ownership over it and they'll make it happen and they'll figure out a path. And that's what you want. You want them to start pushing out of their comfort zone. So we had a, a operation manager that she really wanted to step up into that position. And typically she was, I think, more of an office manager role or a, or a lead dispatcher or wearing a million different hats. So having that conversation with our with our GMs and exec team that, hey, let's let's have her be in that position. You were in the same position where those opportunities were you were stepped over. How did you feel? How did you do when that opportunity was given it to you? You not only owned up to it, but you also uh, rise and proved yourself more than typically would have because you really wanted to impress and do right by the person that gave you that chance. So then the conversation changes like, all right, let's, let's do it. You absolutely see what you're seeing. And so we're coming across of, that's kind of one way of, of doing it, but you really got to know both sides. You got to know the person you're talking to and the person that you're trying to help them coach through. So, but that takes some work, some time to really get to know. And, and that's where half an hour becomes an hour or two. Yeah, I think I feel like we all have our our own memories and lessons where we've had to learn empathy and, and learn what that what it really means to think about what the other person is going through. I have a small example from a, a college internship I had where I worked with the director of finance as a as part of the accounting team, and because my my degree was in accounting, and uh, every so often I would need the CEO to sign checks that are like larger than. 2,500 bucks or something like that. And every so often we'd have one, I need, him to get, I need him to sign it. And often though, he would have his door closed because he's on a call or he's working on something and he needs like dedicated focus time. And as an intern, I didn't know any better. So I see door closed and I was like, oh, I'd, he's still probably available. I don't know what I was thinking, but I would, I would still open the door and ask him to sign a check, which in hindsight is like the dumbest use of his time at that point. 
with his door closed. And the director of finance later on in my internship, I think like a week later, pulled me aside and said, Hey, like when the door's closed, like don't bother him. Like he's working on other stuff. Like there's a lot going on. The check can wait. Like it's okay. <laughs> and so <laughs> I had to think like, okay, I get it. Like he's, he's of course very busy. There's lots of other stuff going on in terms of priority, like thinking in his shoes, signing a, a check isn't really that big of a deal. And so I had to learn how to, how to think through that more. But is there in your own career, do you feel like there's been a moment like that where maybe you didn't have that same amount of empathy that you do today for somebody else and it was a good learning opportunity for you? I have to think back. I'm trying to see when, when was the last time I got reprimanded on something. Which, by the way, signing a $2,500 check, I agree, which is probably really important. You should just burst in. So <laughs> you're like, I need this done. I don't care whether you're on the phone or not. <laughs> Probably something similar, especially when you're younger, is something menial, like, you know, you're building a quote for a customer and, you know, it's the most important thing you want. You told someone that, hey, you want it, you you know, you want it done by this time, like to that person, like I'll get the quote out to you. And, um, you know, your, your manager or your boss is working on whatever they think it's important and you're trying to interrupt them. It's like, no, I need you to review this to approve it. And they're like, that's not the most important thing for me to do. And so right away you start learning that even, you know, clearly they scream. So, <laughs> so you learn really quick that, okay, maybe if the door is closed or they're on the phone, I could wait a minute. I could call someone and say, Hey, I'll send you the code by another day versus a uh, first thing in the morning or something like that. So you learn really quick empathy, but Lucky for me, I just, my upbringing was around that, including from my uh, grandfather and, and, and grandmother, always put, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. So yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it's a, I feel like it's a experience thing too. Like the more jobs you've had, the more companies you've worked in, the more people you've worked with, over time, you just learn that people have their own to-do lists. Everyone has their own set of priorities that may not overlap at all with yours and you have to work through aligning interests over time. And, and to that point of like really looking at a person, you know, we all, you know, 80% the same to a certain extent in terms of what motivates us, what are our concerns, you know, the security is impressing your boss. It's a you know, job security, you know, taking care of your home, finding, you know, looking at a person as a human being versus, you know, whatever the job description is. And then, you know, it makes it a lot easier to, to connect with them and, and find out why they do something for you to be able to walk them through why that's not okay. Cause in their mind, I, I personally don't think people are in, obviously inherently uh, trying to uh, damage the company or do their job incorrectly. They just, this is how they think they can go about solving the problem. They don't see the repercussions to their teammates or they don't see the repercussions that will happen to a customer. Uh, but to their mind, hey, I, I know, let's say plumbing example, I'm going to go to a customer's house. I, you know, I fixed their clogged drain and doesn't matter that I made a mess. You know, I, I fixed their problem, but you just, you know, walked in with a whole bunch of mud and thoroughly and, and, and your presentation and everything else explaining that, hey, walking into a Chipotle or, or, or an in and out is very different than walking into Mrs. Jones' house. Put your booties, introduce yourself. She's alone take a step back after you knock on the door. So you're not towering over her, walk her through everything that is going on. Like being able to explain that to them versus you just did solve a problem. It's very different. Chipotle just solved the problem. I need to make sure that I can keep the lights on and, and have people coming into my restaurant, keep operating. 
So, you know, making sure that you explain that to them and taking the time to do it, to explain the difference, they definitely they understand that. So, yeah, it's interesting you mentioning how like the steps of approaching a customer's house. I remember we did we, I had an episode with John Wilson and he talked about that. He talked about he, they, they coach folks to, if you're going to pull up, make sure you don't pull up into their driveway, like park on the street. And if you arrive at their house and you're like, like get out of the car, like fairly quickly, like don't sit there for 15 minutes because they're going to wonder what you're doing. If you have to finish something up, like park around the corner and then come around, you know, knock, but then step back, make sure you're not like busy on your phone and you're there to say hello. And so it, it's interesting hearing about some of those steps that help build that empathy with with the customer too. Yeah, we, we love John Wilson here. And he actually toured one of our facilities out in the one in Phoenix and connected with our GM there. And they're texting as far as like things that they can implement in their, in their processes. And one of the things we do actually is uh, once you get out of the car, you know, wave to the home. And, you know, not that the home will wave back at you. But everybody has, <laughs> everybody has like a ring or some sort of a doorbell camera or they're looking out their window or the neighbors are looking and you want to present yourself as a friendly contractor, fr- friendly plumber, f- friendly HVAC tech uh, or electrical technician. So it's all starts from there. And your mindset becomes a bit more uplifting uh, if the first thing you do is you smile, wave, and then your whole approach changes, you know, right from that moment. So. Yeah, I could not agree more. How do you, when you're going about hiring someone in any role, like how do you screen for empathy? Are there certain questions you look to ask or certain things on a person's resume? Maybe that's not as helpful, but like, what do you look for in hiring someone to see if they have that kind of empathy that you're looking to have on your team? Alex, you're asking fantastic questions. Hiring process, <laughs> hiring process has, hasn't been something that really has been, it's changed quite a bit. I know I have a couple, couple of my board members providing a much more detailed, systematic way. For me, it's really, you know, how much time can I uh, spend on the phone with them, talking to them, they're talking to me and, you know, through the conversation, through physical FaceTime, trying to figure out, you know, how do they see working with I'll give him like difficult scenarios of, Hey, you know, let's say right now we're hiring a CFO and you know, how would you approach this situation with a controller at one of the operating companies or a senior accountant, at one of the operating companies and how they go about approaching that. Cause at the CFO level, you definitely, you have that coaching role, mentorship role for your, you know, not only VP of finance or your direct reports, but also the, key finance heads at the operating companies. Uh, so you have to have a certain degree of empathy and, and, and servant leader type of mentality. The key, the words that they use, how they use it is, is how I would, I would tell and making sure they're genuine about it uh, because it's uh, it's contextual, not just the buzzword that they, that they put in. But now I, I never actually, it's something that I inherently try to look for, but not actually put it as, you know, part of the scorecard of like, Hey, today this person has empathy or not. I would usually put like, Hey, are they a good mentor? But now I'm going to put it as my list of like looking, actually looking for empathy. So I, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned a mentor. Are you, are you looking for folks who have been mentors to others? So mentors to others, or they had good mentorship that they want to now pass on to others uh, what they learned. And very frequently, 
when I know I'm hiring a high level person, before hiring, I will connect them with someone that will report to them. And I would ask that person, hey, how did the call go? Hey, is that someone that you can learn from? Is that someone that, that you feel like it'll be a resource for you? That's just one of the things that I like to check because I want to make sure I'm not only hiring for myself and for the role, but I'm also hiring for the people that will be reporting to them, especially when you're introducing someone new that is not you know, developed from within. want to make sure that they can see that, hey, this is this guy's experience and some, or lady and it's someone that I can, I can learn and grow on there. You mentioned a, a character trait survey that you use at a, at a different business. Is, is something like predictive index or culture index, is that a part of your hiring process? That's not part of our hiring process. Um, color code is. We've heard of culture index. I heard really great things about culture index. We haven't uh, implemented that. We use color code, absolutely. And it's not so much to try to pigeonhole them into a type of a job. Because there's, there's like, for example, the color code is based on main four core motivation is uh, peace, which is white, power, which is red, intimacy, which is blue, and then uh, fun is, uh, is yellow. It's more so that they, you, you print out the report, you show it to them, and then once you have the second or third interview, your guard is down uh, because right away it shows you know, their weaknesses, their strengths, their core motivation, and you're able to have a much more in-depth conversation versus a superficial based on, on resume and putting a bit of a front in terms of everything being positive. So that's, that's what that accomplishes. And knowing like how they're, you know, people that, for example, are motivated by, by power, if you send them an essay long email, that's not, they'll glaze over it. They like bullet points. As an example, like just send me to, give me the, the ABCs and the one, two, three, don't, don't give me the story. Even though the story is important, but just give me the meat of it. And it's not offensive to them. Others, you know, in blue is more, part of their strengths is one weakness is, is perfection. And being perfectionist, being able to coach them, knowing that about them, that, hey, you know, sometimes 70 and go is just as good as, you know, or better than 100% and you still fail mate on, on making any effective changes. So we use that absolutely as part of our coaching and empathy building and, and uh, every workshop. After acquisition, we have our workshops and within 30 to 90 days, we do our first one and then it's quarterly thereafter and within a year we peel out from that and the leadership team takes ownership of it. A lot of it is, you know, going over the color code, even if it's just a refresher of reminding people of what are the core motivations and what color in terms of their color personality. It's absolutely part of our conversation in a day-to-day tone. What it does is also you don't attack a person. You attack, you don't attack a person, you more objective in terms of like, hey, I know you're motivated by peace, which means like maybe you want to avoid conflict or you want to avoid a difficult conversation, you coach them through like, hey, you need to uh, lean into that in order to develop into the role you have. So it's not something that you can't overcome, but at least you know how that person normally operates or or is motivated to. So you can talk that as opposed to, hey, you're you're avoiding a difficult conversation. So You mentioned an interesting concept there, which is separating the the person from the the color code or the the results of their their survey. My wife's in a physical therapy doctor program, and one thing they focus on is being patient first. So instead of saying like like cancer patient, you'd say patient with cancer. So you have a so you're not labeling them as the disease or condition that they have. And there's a session I was part of on feedback recently too, and how 
instead of saying like, you made me feel bad yesterday in that meeting, you could say like this thing that you said, or this action you took, that's what made me feel bad. So you're, you're separating it, it makes it like you said, like it makes it feel more objective, when you can point to an action or trait beyond just them as a person, it feels less, I think you're right, I feel it feels less targeted and personal, and a little bit more like emotionally neutral as a discussion. Absolutely right. And um, I'd like to even go even deeper than that and explain the why that addressing what they said, also who was in the room that they said it, that heard it, and now their impression of that and why that wasn't the right, not only the right thing to say, but the wrong place to say it. And that clicks. And because, you know, we all talk, might talk differently in front of coworkers and in front of our managers and in front of our friends. Sometimes when you get too comfortable, uh, things can slip. So um, reminding people that the differences of those nuances, it's just part of the you know conversation. And sometimes those conversations come up a day later because they're just not ready to hear you. So the timing of when you address it, you know, when you do it fresh right after, they might not, they're not ready for it. Maybe the, the day after or, or, or two days after, hey, remember that conversation? Let's talk about it. And now they're ready for it. So. Yeah. What have you learned about giving feedback to folks? That's a great lesson right there around giving it some time before giving the feedback, but would love to hear more. So that, yeah, the timing of it. And I tried the timing uh, for it to be where they just experienced something similar that they put up and made someone else feel. So then it's fresh that, okay, now they're ready to hear it because they're literally expressing a frustration that I noticed that uh, when I was in the room with them, um, that that, per- that other person experienced. So let me bring it up now. As much as I would, you know, w- would love to just say it on, on the spot, just because I hey, don't do that again. That's one, not appropriate. And won't, it won't stick. It just looks like, you know, don't know exactly the word. You just keep saying no, no, no type of things. And often, sometimes I actually waited a week and addressed something that was like, okay, remember what you did a week ago? Now you're ready to hear it. And, and very frequently I hear it that say, hey, thank you for waiting for a week. I actually would not have been ready to hear what you just said and receive it until this moment where I'm experiencing this. And now I understand where you're coming from with that other person. So it requires a lot of patience. So yeah. Certainly some patience. I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Because all of us just want to like offload and just say it right on the spot so we don't have to think about it. So, Yeah. One other thing that's been helpful, it sounds like you do this too, but asking the person like, hey, can I give you some feedback? Or are you ready for feedback instead of just saying it? I feel like it is a like allowing them to give you permission to give feedback. I think it feels like allows you to connect better with that feedback and that person. Absolutely. And, and, and actually thanking them afterwards. Like, thank you for allowing me to be so open with you and direct. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. It's uncomfortable for you. Some things are actually, uh, people are very vulnerable about and for them to be able to receive it. Even micromanaging, you know, I, I do not like doing it. And I try to stay on the influence side 99% of the time. And, but when you have to lean in on, on the authority, then it's like, hey, look, is it okay if I become a bit more micromanaging? I just want to help you see through this situation. I want to be a resource and, and support for you and helpful. I see where, where you're navigating on this one and let's work on it together. Let's make it collaborative. So yeah, 100% that, that's it. So Yeah, and, and the sentiment you share with that example just now is that 
I'm giving you this feedback because I care because I, I I want you to succeed and I want us to succeed together. Like if I didn't if I didn't care, I wouldn't be telling you. Exactly. So and then you know I'm okay with people making mistakes. You know as, as long as they're learning from them, I make plenty of, and my board is is very forgiving with me. And a lot of times, you know, people in our new roles, they, they want to just show that they can do it all. And that's some, that's a mistake because you need to have some level of vulnerability to be able to feel comfortable asking for help from the right person so that you can learn from our experience and, and overcome them better. But, you know, people can make thousand dollar mistakes and they're terrified of it. Like, you know, like you mentioned the $2,500 check. But nobody makes bigger financial mistakes than, than me because uh, I own all mistakes at the end of the day. So I, when I share that with them, you know, it puts a bit of a relief because I want people to make mistakes. Then, then they're not pushing themselves. Then they're not taking chances. Then we're not growing. If we're just doing what's comfortable and we're just uh, staying in our uh, comfort zone, we're not pushing. We're not going to experience 20, 30% growth rate like we have over the past three years now, if all we did is just, you know, let's, let's just stay comfortable and keep doing what we always did. Uh, there's always a degree of testing, pushing an envelope, doing a bit of um, experimentation, whether it's customer acquisition, whether it's a uh, token acquisition, whether it's the makeup of the organization, as far as who's porting to who to improve the communication lines or seeing if it will work better if this department works under this person. Every year we try to do something a little bit different because how else we'll, we'll be able to uh, keep pushing the envelope. So with that, things will break. With that, mistakes will happen and, uh, and that's okay. We're learning, we're growing, uh, but that's, I would like us to always be a little bit ahead on that curve. So, Yeah, you mentioned your board and you have a very successful board of folks who are, have each been very successful in their own ventures. How do you lean on that expertise and how do you know when to ask questions or get their help, knowing also that they're busy with lots of other things in their lives. You know, I think if you would ask them, they will tell you, I don't uh, call them enough. They're very available for me. I love talking to them. Extremely experienced. It's a matter of either I text them, uh, hey, you're available for a quick call or you're available tomorrow. Some of them, you know, have more availability than others. Some of them are traveling or I'll, I'll book a call on their county link. I have those some of them already know me that instead of sending an email, they're like, look, I, I know, I know you, you don't want to go over email. Let's just get on the call and we can talk, talk through it. They're very available for me, especially when there's right now four of them. There's one, some of them I have regular calls with every two weeks, all of them, obviously every once a month. So even if those conversations are 10, 15 minutes or sometimes are an hour and 10, 10, 15 minutes. So yeah, I very lucky. And three of them are our co-founders. One of them was our lead investor. Lucky to have his name is Manpreet Singh from SCP, Singh Capital, and um, great team. Very very collaborative. A resource every single time we're having conversations. So yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people are as lucky as as we are, and that's just by happenstance. So. It sounds like you have a like very regular conversation, so maybe it's less applicable, but I'd love to learn more about what kinds of questions are the right ones to ask a board versus peers of yours or your CFO. Like there's probably different types of questions or different whether they're like open-ended or very specific questions you ask a board versus any other person. 
I try to be open with my approach and very candid and transparent with them. I see, I mean, they're, they're owners, significant owners in, in the company. So I seem like, okay, how would I, including myself, but how would I like to be treated? You know, is if it's, and I would tell them if, if I'm sharing too much information, you let me know. I don't want it to be, I like it to be like two way street and I, want, I like to be available for them. I would say I'm thinking of one situation the conversation that, that I had with uh, with one of our board members was very similar to the one that I had with uh, our own exec team. Like, hey, how would you approach the situation? Or what do you think about this deal uh, under this structure? It's one more experienced data point um, that you're eventually you're the one making the decision. Eventually, the one you're the one that owning it. But you take the time and probably slower than I should be, but I take, it takes the time, go through the discovery phase and talk to the key people that you, and some of them you want I very frequently like hearing the, the opposite or, or someone that is disagreeable. And, and if no one is disagreeable, uh, then I play that devil's advocate and, and I'm disagreeable and try to find out like what's the negative of the situation. But I like to hear as much as that possible. So just even if sometimes I made a decision, I would still, and I'm and on a call unless I made a decision yesterday and I didn't get a chance to connect with them, say, hey, this is how I went about it. How would you have gone about it? I already made a decision. I will let them know. It's like, this is how we do it next time, or this is how we normally do it here. Because then you can learn for next time, not only from your experience of what the decision you just made, but from somebody else's that they went through it, but you just haven't had a chance to uh, take it in before making that, taking that action. It's, it's probably more open than it should be, but I, I don't know how else to be. I mean, it sounds like it's working well. Moving into closing questions, what belief have you changed your mind on? Oh, I'll tell you what we're constantly changing. Not constantly, but it's, it's, it's morphing quarter over quarter or, or conversations over conversations. Is decentralization versus centralization. It's what resources is non-negotiable that the holding company, for example, marketing. You know, at first was marketing will always be done by our, the marketing company that we acquired. Now we want to give them some level of autonomy and decision-making based on resources that they have. But SEO is not negotiable because SEO is the one thing we, it's a long-term one that you can make a mistake on paid media. You can make mistakes on a lot of other things, but SEO, if you make a mistake, oftentimes falls into a penalty with Google or, or any other platform. And not that many people do it right. So uh, that's, that's a very small example. The finance, you know, is it something that sits with the holding companies is something that sits with the operating company. We're realizing there's very different levels of finance. You know, you have a controller that might be more compliance focus and financial controls. That would be a better fit for a corporate controller at the holding company, but one that is operational friendly and, and hands-on to provide the right KPIs and reporting for the GMs and the leadership team at the operating company. Well, that, that person will have a different skill set. So, Playing around with the uh, centralized versus decentralized from the inception of Snowball has changed. At first, we were quite top heavy in terms of the resources that we had. We wanted to provide more for the operating companies so they will just do what they're best at. That removed the level of ownership and uh, autonomy for them. Now we're more, we went on the other extreme of decentralizing and keeping Snowball as lean as possible and just focused on MA and providing economies of scale and, and better pricing power and negotiation with our vendors and manufacturers. So using these manufacturers to get better terms and better rebates. So that's, that's the one thing that we're still learning. 
we're still finding what is the right balance. And with the idea that always making sure that the things that the operating companies are either that are obstacles in their way for growing and executing are things that we can identify to remove without overly burdening the holding company because now we're drawing on their financial resources to pay for our expenses. So being cognizant of that balance. Yeah, certainly. What's the best business you've ever seen? You know what? Actually, one of the better ones I've seen is in out of Fresno, a friend of ours, out of Fresno, California. And I think we touched on it. That team, they run a great shop. They have great training, great managers all across, great crew, system-oriented, very process-driven, running on a budget, love every person in their leadership team from the GM, sales manager, install manager, their controller. They built something quite amazing. So yeah, actually, I would say that that business in an area that is the population is about half a million and median median house income is like 50,000, 55,000 or so. So, you know, they had challenges. They overcame them. And they, it wasn't an obstacle for them. Yeah, some of those really good cultures can be hard to find and much more rare than we would hope they would be. No, the other one would be any hour too, out of Utah that I mentioned. They have fantastic culture. You mentioned culture. That's the first company that I thought of. You walk into that place, you feel it from room to room. Yeah, it's, it's impressive what a good culture feels like. Thank you, Amir, for sharing your time. I really appreciate it. It's been really good to get to know you. And I'm I'm glad I could get from a, a call to a podcast so quickly. And it feels like one continuous conversation. So I'm, I'm really glad we got to do that and get to chat. Same here, Alex. And I think, you know, like you said, we have quite a bit to still uh, unpack. Um, I'm looking forward for some more to share with you because we do a lot of different things that are interesting and, and, um, and I think you would enjoy. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts in our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com.